Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Edith of Wessex. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consort of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. And Happy New Year. Happy New... Oh, I was going to say that. Happy uh, Christmas. Yeah. I didn't see you at Christmas. No, we were both rather busy over Christmas. What have you been up to? Well, I have joined you in uh, getting a dynasty score of two. And yeah, I like you, a baby girl. She was just a few days before Christmas that she came, which was a bit of a relief. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Alex has been quite quite good so far. He's quite, he's, he seems very nice to her. He strokes her and he says, hello, hello, Ninor, because her name is Eleanor Catherine Duke. Very Rexy. So Eleanor, he's translated yeah. to Ninor. Yeah. Just before uh, before me, so in November, Mike of uh, Tin Mouse fame, yeah. um, he oh, yeah. and uh, his partner Laura, they had uh, a baby, uh, a baby boy, uh, which is Alfred John. Two Rexy names. So that means that all four of us, as in you, me, for Rex Factor, Tom and Mike for Tin Mouse, we all had babies in 2019. Yeah. And also, of course, introduce the fact that we're doing the consort series and we They're both had girls. girls. Yeah. yeah, of course. Mm. God, that is funny, isn't it? Anyway, so congratulations to Mike and Laura, belatedly, because it was good yeah. over a month ago, but we're, we've recorded so many well in advance that... Yeah, so now we're back at the start of January 2020. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactor Podcast Facebook page and join in the discussion there. And you can email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And if you want to hear more of this sort of thing, then you can donate monthly to the podcast and join the Privy Council. And you get bonus content, including the Privy Chamber podcast that we do after each of these main episodes. Biography! So, Edith of Wessex, mm. she was born uh, sometime between 1020 and 1025, so potentially exactly 1,000 years ago. Oh, yes. Happy birthday to you. What's mm. her name? Edith. 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 Anyway, she is the daughter of Godwin, Earldman of Wessex, mm. and Githa Thorkelsdotter. So, uh, who's Danish? Danish, yeah. Mm. Um, is that Godwin that we met last time? It is Godwin that we met last time. Indeed, met a couple of times. A very powerful Earl mm. who was both ally and enemy uh, of Emma. Mm. And uh, the name Edith apparently means blessed war. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like holy war. Or perhaps um, riches from war. Booty. Stolen goods. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, what was her husband called? Edward. Edward was been handling stolen goods oh. again. And <laughs> <laughs> um, now, like Emma of Normandy, Edith commissions her own work of family history. Oh, so she's going to be good. Yeah, the Vita Edwardi. Uh, so this promotes her importance and uh, her agency, which is obviously good for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's perhaps less overtly ambitious than Emma and her encomium, uh, but it's got a similar purpose, and it's a very useful source for us. Anyway... Bit of family background mm. for Edith. Um, her story really is bound up in the dramatic rise of, and indeed fall, of her Godwin family. So I've said we've mentioned her father quite a few times. In terms of the family's origins, there is some speculation that they were descended from Ethelred I, 
So this is not the Unready, this is um, one of the older brothers of Alfred the Great. So that would suggest that they ultimately have a sort of royal lineage. God, um, that's going back a bit, though. It's going back quite a long way, and it's thought quite unlikely by most historians. All of the um, Ethelred line names started with Eth or Elf, yeah. but then Godwin's father suddenly has a completely different name. That's a long time ago, isn't it? It's a bit spurious. Now, her father, Godwin, first appears in 1014 in the will of Prince Athelstan, who was the oldest son of Ethelred the Unready, mm. but the one that died in, obviously, 1014, hence mm. the will. So this suggests that he may have fought for Edmund Ironside against Canute in 1016. Eek! Because he's part of that posse. Yeah. But it's not too bad for him, because under Canute, he becomes the Alderman of Wessex and the most powerful nobleman in the country. Oh, good work. So it seems that Canute values those who are loyal to Edmund Ironside, so he tends to execute the ones who are either a threat to him or the ones that sort of switch sides a bit, and he thinks, well, I can't trust you if the previous king couldn't trust you. That's interesting. So mm. even though he was being fought against, it was the loyalty that they showed either way, as long as it was consistent. Yeah. I like that. Now, interestingly, um, Edith's mother... Githa, mm. the Danish one. She's the daughter of a chap called Thorkel Sprackling, who is a Danish chieftain, and apparently, according to legend, the son of a noblewoman and a bear. <laughs> right. So technically, therefore, Edith is the uh, granddaughter of a bear. Hairy, was she? <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming, yeah. <laughs> now, Edith is one of nine children. Mm, first one? Uh, dates are unknown. Probably the oldest is a chap called Sven. Naturally, and yeah. then probably Harold, who is Harold Godwinson. Ah, so what? She's his brother. She's his sister. His <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. It was a fifty-fifty. <laughs> you know. I'm so confused now. Now that we've got girls and boys, it's just oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. So Edith Wessex is the sister of Harold Godwinson. Okay. And Tostig is another name that will. Sorry, uh, just, so does that mean in 1066? Yes. The Harold Godwinson, who was elected by the Wheatam, wasn't he? Yes. Not to skip ahead, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was the king's brother-in-law. Yes. So these guys don't have babies? Well, let's... Dynasty! <laughs> <laughs> so marriage is indeed uh, the person in question, um, which I'm sure while you're segueing into it. Um, Edith, in many ways, has actually educated to be a perfect consort. Probably wasn't what they imagined um, that she would be, but as it is, uh, she was educated at the nunnery of Wilton, mm -hmm. which is one that we've mentioned before. It's an elite educational establishment for the daughters and the nobility. Set up by that woman. Wolfrith. Yeah. Well, I think it was already there, but she's the one that really sort of elevated it. So this was yeah. the second consort of Edgar the Peaceable. Why do I remember stuff like that, but not... Or I think it sounded like the Waltons. Maybe. Uh, so it's a very prestigious place where nobles tend to send their daughters. So the fact that she's educated at a nunnery doesn't mean that she was going to become a nun. Right. It just means that she's very well educated. Yeah, okay. Perfect education, really, for a queen consort. Mm. And indeed, in 1045, we learn this from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Stigand returned to his bishopric. In the same year also, King Edward took to wife... Edgifta, the daughter of Earl Godwin, ten nights before Candlemas. That's it. That is it. God, the fuss they made about Prince Harry's wedding. He <laughs> <laughs> gets one line in dispatches, though. So, what has happened here is that Edith of Wessex has married the King of England, Edward the Confessor. Big. Right. Now, Edward the Confessor was born sometime between 1003 to 1005, uh, but didn't become king until 1042. 
Oh, quite late. So he'd had to go off into exile in Normandy in 1016 when Canute invaded. Ah, right. So he's the son of Ethelred the Unready and Emma of Normandy. Yeah, okay. So he spends most of his life in Normandy. So when he comes back and is king in 1042, he's the first Saxon king since 1016. But but it's not his culture. He's grown up in Normandy. Weird. So it's this weird situation where... Edith is actually probably the one who's much more comfortable in this environment because this is absolutely what she's grown up in. Um, that does make the ground more ripe for invasion from the French, that it's less of a mm. unknown yeah. having a, a, a foreign king. Um, something of an enigmatic character, Edward. He has a later uh, very saintly reputation, of course, indeed. He becomes a saint, which is about as saintly as you can get. Uh, but in life, he fights in military campaigns. He enjoys hunting. He's a pretty typical sort of aristocratic Man of That's the time. interesting because I definitely had him down as very dull. Mm. Just I thought he was quite sickly and always doing a lot of praying, not mm. out and about having adventures. No, whereas actually he's this man who's lived his life in exile. Yeah, he finally gets the throne. Now ten o three to ten o five, whereas Edith is born sometime between ten twenty ten twenty five. So we've got a sort of roughly twenty year age gap between Edward and Edith. Oh right, yeah. Uh, which is quite a biggie. Now, in terms of why they marry, the most pressing reason is, of course, dynastic. Edward is about 40 years old at this point. He's the last um, that is known at this point in the royal male Saxon line. Mm. So he obviously needs to produce some heirs pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, his Normandy upbringing, as we saying, meant he doesn't have a core group of supporters, so he sort of needs really to build mm. that. And Godwin, as we said, is the most powerful noble as mm. the Alderman of Wessex, so his support is really vital to Edward being able to have a successful reign. Mm. But it might be a bit of a surprise, because although, as we said, Godwin had initially been the closest ally of Emma of Normandy in the succession crisis when she was facing off against Elfgeed of Northampton, yeah. her son, Godwin ultimately switched sides so when Emma called Edward and his brother Alfred over from Normandy to England, Godwin betrayed Alfred, handed him over to the rival son, oh. and Alfred was blinded and killed. So we've now got a situation where Edward is marrying the daughter of the man that effectively killed his brother. Wow. So Godwin is now Edward's father-in-law. God, that's horrible. So, and Godwin then, in this instance, is sort of saying, you can have a secure reign, I'll sell you a bit of secure reign if my influence inc- stays there through mm. the daughter. It's not a case of Godwin's influence staying, it's very much a case of Godwin's family influence increasing. What? Edith is immediately very prominent in the charters. Um, his eldest son, so her eldest brother Sven, is already an earl. Harold Godwinson, at this point, mm. also becomes an earl. And their cousin, a chap called Bjorn Estrithson, soon follows. So the Godwins, basically, through their earldoms, own southern England. Basically. Yeah. I always thought of Harold as the goody, but actually he comes from quite a long line of nasties. Mm. Mind, mind you, they're all pretty wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, in terms of their relationship and whether or not they got on, more likely, many people think, that they didn't have a particularly close relationship. As we said, there's about 15 to 20 years mm. age gap between them. Edith has educated at Wilton. She enjoys this cultured and very sophisticated uh, sort of lifestyle, whereas Edwards had a rather more rustic upbringing as an exile in and around Normandy, doesn't really have much interest in finery and Mm. pomp and circumstance and all that sort of thing. Right. William of Malmesbury says Mm. that when she became his wife, the king acted towards her so delicately that he neither removed her from his bed nor knew her after the manner of men. 
I have not been able to discover whether he acted thus from dislike to her family, which he prudently dissembled from the exigency of the times, or out of pure regard to chastity. Yet it is most notoriously affirmed that he never violated his purity by connection with any woman. be so much more straightforward if they could just unclench a bit and say, I'm pretty sure they didn't have sex. <laughs> 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 One way or the other. It didn't didn't lay upon the leaf. Or <laughs> I don't know, they always just... Oh. Now this is probably pretty dubious. Edward is the last immediate male in the Royal Saxon line. It's highly unlikely he would have abstained yeah. from carnal relations, either due to hatred of the family or because he was such a saintly character. As we saw with Emma, he clearly held a grudge against his mother. Mm. Yeah. It takes him a while, but in when he becomes king, he then deprived her of all of her lands. When Once he got a nugget of an excuse, he took action. Yeah. Mm. With Godwin, it does rather seem similarly and understandably that he has not forgotten what happened to his brother Alfred. Good. And he is just waiting for the right moment to strike. Oh... Now, Edward, sort of 1050, 1051, was seen to be creating something of a French party at court. So <laughs> no? not, not a French party, but a party of French people. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so his nephew, Ralph of Mont, yeah. uh, he was made the Earl of Hereford. 1051, he rejected the man elected to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, and who's a kinsman of Godwin and instead elected Robert of Humierge. This is the first time then we're getting quite a big French influence in the power structure. Mm. There's been a player, but here they are actually taking roles. Now then, the second husband of Edward's sister, Godgiver, a chap called Eustace of Boulogne, came over to visit. And uh, while he was in Dover, his men caused uh, quite a bad affray. Edward ordered Godwin to go to Dover and punish the town. So Harriet, oh. effectively. But Godwin refused. Having refused the king's orders, tensions then mount, and we have something of a military standoff in which Edward has got the backing of the earls of Mercia and Northumbria. He well, wants to bring this to a head, doesn't he? He's looking for an excuse. Godwin is a little bit nervous about this. He's obviously facing the king. He's facing these other two very powerful northern. Yeah. He's hoping that some kind of reconciliation will take place. Edward sends a messenger to Godwin telling him that Godwin would and his family will be restored to favour once his brother Alfred has been restored to life. Oh! Oh, so he's got him in this position and he doesn't have an out. Godwin takes that as a sign that it's probably best to vacate the scene. Yeah. So Godwin and his sons go off into exile. Good call. But of course there's another family member for the Godwins. Yeah. Edith. Yeah. Married to... Edward, but her family has been sent off into exile. So what's going to happen to her? Yeah. Soon after this took place, the king dismissed the lady who had been consecrated his queen and ordered to be taken from her all that she had in land and in gold and in silver and in all things and committed her to the care of his sister at Werewell. I reckon you're right earlier on. They didn't like each other. So he has set about repudiating her. He sent mm. her off to a nunnery. Classic Saxon kinging. <laughs> that is quality king in there. What should we do? <sighs> nunnery? Yeah. <laughs> is this all about Godwin and he just wants an excuse to take his vengeance on yeah. his father-in-law? Mm. Some have speculated that actually the primary motivation might have been the fact that 
after six years of marriage, he has no children by Edith. Oh, he's done a Henry. So actually, rather perhaps than repudiating her because he doesn't like her dad, maybe he's exiled her dad because he wants to repudiate her. But it was never a problem taking on another wife in the past. We've talked about that. Well, no, but at this point, we've got Godwin, his sons with all their earldoms. They're probably not going to oh, take very too kindly. Oh, too powerful to, of match. Yeah. Yeah, so okay. he needs to get rid of them if he wants to get mm. rid of her. Okay. And it's interestingly, probably at this time, William, the Duke of Normandy, is invited over to visit. Mm-mm. And probably at this point that Edward indicates to him that he will be his heir. Right. So Edward repudiating Edith probably leads to William considering himself the direct heir. So that is it for Edith of Wessex. What? Until huh? one year later in 1052, Godwin and his sons have got some force with them. They come back to England... The nobles who have faced off against him before are not willing to go to war with each other. Right. So Edward is forced to accept the Godwin's return. Robert of Eumierge, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is sent into exile back to Normandy. Godwin is restored and Edith is recalled from the nunnery. She's back as queen. So he says, can you come be my wife again? She has been unrepudiated. God, that's awkward. But, surprisingly, things do seem to improve after this. Bit of an icebreaker, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's got to improve, but whether their relationship will stand up. Well, I mean, the best thing that improves is that the year after that, in 1053, Godwin dies. Oh, right, great, yeah. And Edward doesn't seem to have had any particular grudge against the sons okay. uh, of Godwin, and indeed now seems to have got on a bit better with Edith. The following decade seems to be very uneventful. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle had recorded, you know, pretty much minute by minute, the fallout with Godwin, mm. then barely mentioned anything for the next ten years or so. So it's almost a bit of a sort of second golden age, in a way, a new Edgar period in which everything is just quiet and prosperous, peaceful. All is going very well. Edward seems increasingly to dedicate himself to uh, the building of Westminster Abbey. That's what I'm thinking of. And the man who instead is doing a lot of the kinging, in many ways, is Harold Godwinson. Takes over from his father as the elderman uh, of Wessex and becomes effectively the sort of trusted right-hand man for Edward. Mm. So he uh, defeats Griffith at Llewellyn, mm. ruler of Wales, in fact, king of Wales, and is pretty much running the country in many ways. So he's got a good claim as well. I mean, I know we're doing the um, consorts here, but you can't get caught up in this in this big shadow looming in the future here. Well, and the Godwin family is going from strength to strength, of course. So Edith, the sister of Harold Godwinson, is still the queen, and she seems to be much more powerful now that she's been restored. She's witnessing charters always straight after Edward and mm. always as queen mm. rather than, you know, as lady or whatever. She is now very dominant, particularly at court, and she's one of Edward's key advisors, so she helps to influence Episcopal and secular appointments. Mm. And she's also doing quite a lot around making it more regal and more sort of finery and that sort of thing. Oh, she likes that. Mm, she mm. likes all that sort of stuff. 1055, Edith helps secure her brother Tostig as Earldoman of Northumbria. Mm. And in 1057, her other two brothers, Gerth and Leofwin, are granted earldoms. So the only earldom in England that's not ruled by a Godwin is Mercia. Which is ruled by... Um, Someone else. Oh. <laughs> Leofric. Ah. And then Elfgar, his son, later. Uh, so this Tostig fella, he's up north. Yes. That's important. He's not very popular in Northumbria, and in 1065 there is a rebellion. Mm-hmm. And in this, Morka, who is the brother of the Elderman of Mercy, a chap called Edwin, mm-hmm. 
and the Northumbrians elect Morka to be the new earl mm. for Northumbria instead of Can Tostig. Well, exactly. Can they do that? Tostig has got the firm support of Edward the Confessor and indeed of Edith, his mm. sister. So Harold is sent up north to negotiate. Mm. And he sees pretty big army. Yeah, right. And Harold decides, you know what, maybe it'd be better if we just kind of let this happen. So he accepts the switch. He accepts Morker's new Earl of Northumbria and accepts the replacement of his brother Tostig. Wow. It's a pretty big wow moment because Tostig does not forgive him. He goes off into Flanders and becomes Harold's mortal enemy. Yeah. Edward the Confessor had been in pretty good health up to this point, but he falls ill yep. uh, later in the year. Perhaps, you know, the shock of these events uh, knocked him for six a bit. So on Boxing Day, he falls ill for the first time, and tragically, he's unable to attend the consecration of Westminster Abbey. Oh. It's sort of life's work. He's too old oh, to actually go dear. and see it done. And then on the 5th of January in 1066, aged about 60, which is very yeah. impressive. This is the oldest Saxon king. Yeah. He dies. Huh. And on his deathbed, he says to Harold, I commend this woman, i.e. Edith, and all the kingdom to your protection. He gives her his wife as well. <laughs> well, Harold's sister. For your protection. Protection. Yeah. So this is seen as being acknowledging Harold, who doesn't have any claim to the throne other than that he's the most powerful man in the country, as Edward's heir. The actual chap who should have been king, really, is the grandson of Edmund Ironside, Edgar the Etheling. Ah, him. Yeah. His father had been in, off in uh, Hungary for all his life, but then they came back. The father died as soon as he got to England. Edgar is there. He is considered an Etheling, so a royal prince, but he's very young. He doesn't have any allies at court, so he's just passed over, really. Weird. Harold Godwinson has no blood claim, but he's very powerful, and he seems to be named heir by Edward on his deathbed. Yeah. William, Duke of Normandy, was apparently named as heir in 1051. Mm. He's related to Edward, but on the maternal side, so he doesn't also have a blood claim. Mm. Now, Tostig, Harold's brother, decided to make an alliance with Harold Hardrada, who's the king of Norway. And Hardrada had got this very spurious claim based on a sort of an agreement of his predecessor with Emma's Danish son, Arthur Canute, about oh, yeah, being each other's heirs yeah. and stuff. So we've got Tostig and Hardrada, Harold Godinson, William Duke of Normandy, all competing for the throne. So, 1066 is a year of epic battles. Tostig and Hardrada defeat Edwin and Morka at the Battle of Fulford. Mm -hmm. But then they are killed by Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Stamford Bridge mm -hmm. when Harold storms up to York yeah. to rescue the North. But Harold Godwinson is then killed by William the Conqueror along with his brothers Gerth and Leofwin at the Battle of Hastings. Yeah. Okay. So an epic year which ends up with Harold, Gerth, Tostig, Leofwin, all the Godwin brothers killed in battle. Oh, yeah, all of them. And here's... Uh, now a French court, Edith's, she's very Saxon and a bit Danish and not terribly French, whereas yes. Edward was. Yes. So she won't fare well here. Well, after the Battle of Hastings, Edgar the Etheling is then elected as king by the Wheatan. Mm. Uh, but, so William sets about marching on London to basically finish the job off. Now, Edith isn't in London at this point. She's in Winchester. Mm. And like Emma before her, seems to have been in control of the treasury. Oh. So William goes off to Winchester, an important place, of course, mm. opens negotiations with Edith, mm. and then they come to terms, and she surrenders the city to him. 
So she just rolls over and that's the end. Indeed, Edgar's support quickly ebbs away and William is crowned King of England on the 25th of December, 1066. Yeah. End of a big year. Yeah. So, what does Edith get out of it? Well, actually, she does pretty well. Um, William wants to demonstrate his status as Edward's heir by treating Edward's widow very well, and very honourably, and thus he has to treat her very well. He's also, because of depriving all of these Saxon lords who are all dead, he's taken all their land away. Mm-hmm. So unlike previous kings that want to change things up, he doesn't need to take Edith's land away to give it to his queen. Mm. She can keep all of her land and he can just find some other land instead. Oh, okay. So she retains pretty much all of her land and is actually a very, very wealthy uh, dowager. Hmm. She seems to have rejoined Wilton, mm. the nunnery, and she's still at court on uh, on occasion. In 1071, she's present for the consecration of the Bishop of Durham. What, sorry, what, she, what would she do if she went back to Wilton? She's not the abbess. She's not the abbess. I guess she's just... But she's more powerful than the abbess. Mm, she's doing a bit of reading. It's just like... Uh, it's like... It's like Margaret Thatcher going and staying in the Ritz for the last few years of her life. Mm. It's just very strange. Mm. Got to do something. I suppose. As I say, she does go back to court. She sees the Bishop of Durham being consecrated in 1071. 1072, it's her last appearance at court. She witnesses the sale of lands to the Bishop of Wells. Now, she doesn't seem to be quite ill, unfortunately, in her final years. So she's only about sort of somewhere between 40 and 45 when she dies on the 18th of December... 1075. God, so she saw a real consolidation of power. So by that point, it's pretty much yeah, pretty much all done for the Norman Conquest. And the uh, her burial, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us, the king caused her to be brought to Westminster with great pomp, and he laid her with King Edward, her lord. So Edward is, of course, buried at Westminster Abbey, his creation, which means that Edith is the first queen to be oh, buried. Oh, nice. That's fact. So that is the life and consortship of Edith of Wessex. Let's see how she gets on when we review her. Battleliness! Now, quite a lot of what we've discussed so far is, is in some ways it's not always been about her. It's because of the events of 1066. There's a lot of yeah. other people doing stuff. But actually, she is quite a powerful figure in her own right, particularly in the latter half of the reign. She's one of the key advisers for Edward the Confessor, and she's a dominant figure at court. Mm. Uh, From the 1050, she witnesses 14 out of the 22 surviving charters. As we said, always after Edward, usually as Regina, Mm. Regina. It is weird, though, isn't it, that he's just had this complete fault fast, and she's now in the good books, and they're getting on, and all the past is forgotten. On the, on the other hand, Edward makes a really big sort of show of force against her and then is very much tail mm. between his legs afterwards. Yeah, is he though, the tail between the legs bit? Well, maybe he just sort of gave up a little bit and thought, oh, I'm just going to build an abbey. Yeah, it feels like he retired to his shed. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I think that's what he did. <laughs> he retired to his shed, which was Westminster Abbey. Fancy shed, let's be fair. Frank Barlow, Edward uh, the Confessor's uh, biographer, says that whenever <laughs> we... Sorry, I thought you were going to say brother. (laughs) (laughs) Frank (laughs) Parlow. Whenever we catch sight of her elsewhere, we see a determined woman interfering hard and probably bad-tempered. Interfering? Strong. She invalidates a gift from the Archbishop of York to Peterborough, and she also disputed the will of a woman with uh, the Abbot of Peterborough, and apparently Edward and uh, her brothers had to persuade her to back down. Right. Because basically she was not going to let go. 
Oh, yeah, okay. The abbot of uh, Saint Riquier um, came and popped over for a visit. But when Edith offered him the kiss of uh, greeting and peace, mm. the abbot recoiled in horror. Why? Well, Edith was absolutely infuriated and took her gifts straight back from him. <laughs> yeah. uh, But Edward had to intervene and explain that actually he was being a much more uh, pure uh, of spirit. Really, no cleric should be accepting such sinful things as kisses. Oh, right. You know, she's not she's not someone to be messed no. with. If she doesn't get what she wants, then she fights back. So that also shines a nice little lead, uh, light. Nice little light on uh, Edward in his shed. <laughs> Imagine what happens when her husband sends her to a nunnery. Yeah, the, when she comes back, she says, right. He says, don't worry, dear, you do it. I'm off. <laughs> I'm off. <laughs> yeah. I've got a very important task. Somewhere where she might have shown a lot more power had things gone her own way mm. is the succession. Now, we mentioned before how she commissions the Vita Edwardi, this uh, sort of dynastic history. Mm. It's clear at this point Edward's going to die without an heir. Yeah. It's very likely that she would have had the succession in mind, as indeed would everybody. Mm. Vita presents the Godwin family as a key to the nation's success. Is it setting them up as the ideal kingmakers? So she's thinking, right, when Edward dies, basically we get to decide who's going to be king. Mm. Or is she justifying the next king being a Godwin? I mm. held. Mm. So is she part of a scheme? Yeah, it's definitely not. She didn't commission this <laughs> to uh, just hang around with me. Let's see what happens. Mm. She got the fellow to write it and said, "Right, this is what we're going to do." The deathbed of Edward the Confessor, Edith is presented as sitting on the floor, warming his feet in her lap, mm. just you know, comforting him. And Edward says, "May God repay my wife for her dutiful and loving service." For she has certainly been a devoted servant to me and has always been at my side like a beloved daughter. Bit Ooh, weird. Yeah. May God's mercy reward her with eternal joy in heaven. And then to Harold, I commend this woman and all the kingdom to your protection. Remember that she is your lady and sister and serve her faithfully and honour her as such for all the days of her life. Do not take away from her any honour that I have granted her. But it's interesting what exactly she's saying there, because there's a bit more detail than we read before. The reference to daughter is later often used as evidence of Edward being saintly. Uh, no sexual really man and wife. Is, yeah. Yeah. But perhaps what Edith was actually intending was to cast herself as daughter in the sense of inheritance. Oh. Perhaps a regency. Oh. Maybe one in which she... Is a queen. Or at the very least, a sort of surrogate queen mother figure of some kind. Harold is told, uh, remember that she is your lady and sister. Yeah. Serve her faithfully. Yeah. God, that's interesting. So perhaps her ambition was rather grander. So what? how did that fail? Well, Harold took the throne. Yeah. But an interesting thing, the Vita also elsewhere represents her as being something of a surrogate queen mother to the various royal boys who were at court. So we've got Edgar the Etheling as the most prominent of those, mm. but there are some others. So it's almost showing her as a potential queen mother, even mm. though she doesn't actually have children, but she's mm. got that role at court. Mm. Maybe she's seeing herself as being able to secure a role post-Edward. Yeah. Even though she doesn't have children, perhaps she could be the sort of maternal... Yeah, figure. she's got uh, irons in a lot of fire. She's looking for a role. Mm. But on the same hand, there's not nothing come of it. Well, we do know, of course, she was repudiated earlier in the reign. Mm. 
Um, and it's only really due to the power of her father and her brothers that she was ultimately more secure than her predecessors. Otherwise, if she'd, they'd not come back, we wouldn't remember her at all. And of course, 1066 does not go the way of the Godwin family, I think no. it's fair to say. Uh, the Vita is all about the glory of the Godwin family, but it comes crashing down. She might have been hoping to avert the Harold Tostig split. Mm. But if she that was the intention, then it failed. failed yeah. uh, she's treated well by William, but she is generally a pretty minor figure in her final years. There's a quite sad story where she had to appeal uh, for a local hundred, so that's hundred as in a form of, sort of local government, to intervene when a man in charge of her horses withheld rent. Huh. And when you think before, the king was having to intervene to persuade her to let the uh, the abbot of Peterborough yeah. down. Now she's having to appeal to local government to get the man looking after her horses to pay her Wow. Rent. And also, it does take years for William to fully complete the conquest, and we see lots of uh, rebellions going on against him from the Saxons, including uh, led by Edith's mother, mm. Githa. She sort of helped provoke rebellion in Exeter. Right. And indeed the sons of Harold, so Edith's nephews, yeah. part of rebellions against William. Edith herself never seems to have engaged in any of this at all, and she does just define herself from this point on as Edward's widow. Mm. She decides to take the money, settle down, and keep her head down. Understandable, really, if you're in that situation. You oh, think, yeah. Well, that's, just, that's what I'd have done as yeah. well, but... You know. For battliness, yeah. that was, there was battliness going on against William from the Saxons, but Edith is the most prominent figure. Not doing she, anything. She isn't doing anything. Mm. So what do you think of score for battliness? Remind me of the good stuff again? Well, we've got her as a sort of influential figure. She's mm. quite powerful. She's got agency. She's doing stuff. We see whenever she's angered, whether it be an abbot or a, a husband or whatever, that she's quite feisty I've against them. And we've got that sort of not clear exactly what she's up to, but potential scheming for the succession in 1066. It seems like she is trying to secure a position in some way. Yeah, but nothing happened. We've all, I mean, I... She's trying. I dream of being an all-black. Never going to happen. <laughs> um, the way I see it, mm. um, zero influence and then repudiated, comes back and it's her brother's in charge. Uh, the end of um, husband's reign, she doesn't do anything. She's undone by events, really. Yeah, I mean, she's worked her way up to be an important advisor at court, hasn't she? She's, mm. But that's where it stops. She's not breaking new ground for queens or queenship. She's looking for a gig mm. when uh, she's made redundant. Yeah. Which is natural. And uh, she definitely was up to something with that book that she wrote. Mm. But I still don't think I'd go much higher than a three. Yeah, I'm going to give her a four and a half. I think she's got a bit of fight in her. Mm. I just think she doesn't quite get the opportunity to demonstrate it. Noy. Anyway, that is a seven and a half for battliness. Scandal. One might criticise her as something of a sellout. Yeah. She, on Edward's death, she's the richest woman and the fourth richest person in England. Well, actually, probably th once he dies, the third richest person. And after 1066, she retains most of her lands, which are valued at over £1,000 a year in Doomsday. Mm. I don't have a conversion for 1066, mm. but 
that's more than a thousand pounds today. That's still more than me. And she leads that initial submission of Winchester instead of lending weight to the election of Edgar as king. Family is leading rebellions, her nephews, her mother even. Yes, yeah, so she's probably thinking, well, they can go with it. I'm the third richest person in the country. Why is there such a uh, negative view towards selling out? <laughs> <laughs> can we just review this for a minute? Yeah. I mean, it's all very well. We're, we're disappointed because it means the end of her involvement in this episode and mm. our overall narrative. But yeah. she's there thinking... I don't know how old she is at this point, say 30. Yeah, Spent 30, the last 10 so. years scheming and trying not to get on the wrong side of death. Yeah. Uh, making money in a man's world. And then she's got this chance to get out while the going is good. She does. Yeah. Fine, I say. Now, interestingly with Edith, um, she does have a little bit of a reputation for being perhaps a little on the corrupt side. Ah, oh, cool. Oh, weird. (laughs) She has a reputation for taking treasures from monasteries. Oh, right. In Gloucester, apparently she ordered several local monasteries to send reliquaries so that she could basically just pick the best ones for herself. Just to keep. And they did? Well, Evesham feared losing the relics of their principal patron, uh, Saint, so they sent the relics of a lesser Saint. Mm. And when Edith ordered the shrine to be open for inspection, because she... She suspects that they've tried to pull faster on her. She was left blind and only restored to sight when she promised never again to offer violence against St. Odolf. And uh, she also seized property bequeathed to Peterborough by Archbishop Kinesis. Hmm. They're all a bit gangstery though, at this time, aren't they? Well, she's the queen. Yeah. And she's the queen to St. Edward the Confessor. <laughs> yeah. I like it. What a, what a funny side to her character. In Ramsey, the abbot thought it dangerous to contest a claim brought by a certain powerful man, but thought that he could secure favourable judgment by making a financial offering to the king and queen. Hmm. 20 gold marks to Edward and 5 gold marks to Edith. Jobs are good. Hmm. And uh, also simony. The practice of selling ecclesiastical offices and sacraments. At least two royal clerks obtained bishoprics and then lost their episcopal estate to Edith. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. It's nothing's new, is it? And then William of Malmesbury. Oh, yeah. Here he is. Both in her husband's lifetime and afterwards, she was not entirely free from suspicion of dishonour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But when dying in the time of King William, she voluntarily satisfied the bystanders of her unimpaired chastity by an oath. But so, in other words, William Marsley was reporting that um, both whilst married to Harold, uh, whilst married to Edward, and afterwards, that she was accused of adultery. Adultery. That's what you mean by dishonour. Dishonour. Oh. Hence the chastity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Unimpairedness. Well, I suppose Edward wasn't really. Was he? But, I mean, this is far more scandalous than I imagined it was ever (laughs) going to be. The biggie. Mm. Murder. What? Of who? Set it up like a detective story. So, in the north, Mm. we've had... Tostig. Well, it does relate to Tostig. Poor relations between north and south in England since, well, basically... Ever. Ever. Uh, but particularly since the reign of Ethelred the Unready, when um, we've seen in some of our more recent episodes, um, he murders Elfhelm, who is the Alderman of York, hmm. the father of uh, Elfgiver of Northampton. He also murdered Sigurdfuth and Morka. 
And of course, the North submits early to Sven and then Canute, and there are blood feuds and all sort of stuff. So it's really not been happy times between Wessex mm. and Mercia stroke Northumbria. Mm. Now, in 1055, Edith intervened to help her brother Tostig become Earldman of Northumbria. But as we saw, this appointment was very unpopular. He's a southerner and his regime was considered rather oppressive. Mm. Now, somebody that they might have preferred to be ruling them in the north was a chap called Goss Patrick. He's part of the old Bamba family that had ruled Northumbria for generations, a sort of virtual royalty mm-hmm. in the north. And he's also a descendant of Ethelred the Unready. Mm-hmm. So he's only one of... He's one of only two male descendants of Ethelred who is not being raised at the royal court. Seen it so thus seen as perhaps a bit of a threat. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1065, on the 28th of December, there is a rumour that Edith arranged for Gospatrick to be murdered while staying at the royal court. Uh-oh. Most likely to Im- uh, eliminate a threat to her brother Tostig. Right. What, what evidence we got? Well, it's hard to be certain, but it, as we said, she does seem to have had a rather steely reputation. She's very much dominant at court. She's mm. the kind of person who, if she were so inclined, would probably be able to arrange Oh yeah, that sort of thing. And the historian Pauline Stafford said that like Emma in the 1030s, Edith was a political actor and court politics had a nasty side in the 11th century in 11th century England from which her gender did not exclude her. Yeah. In other quite words, right. quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah, just because she's a woman, don't get blindsided. Exactly. You, you nasty bigots. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've actually got quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, that's quite a lot. I got mean, a few ticks there. Yeah, yeah we got some... Uh, Sex? Yeah. I mean, there's none throughout, <laughs> not with them, but, you know. Murder. Uh, murder. You know, she's a bit of a um, private um, walker, you know. <laughs> uh, got uh, suitable supplies and yeah. all that. We've got murder, sex and corruption. Corruption, that's the word. Mm. It is good. I'd be really hard-pressed to certainly go any lower than six, and I'm toying with a seven. Mm. I'll go I'm with a six. I think I'm going. I'm, I'm going for a seven and a half there. I think she's done a good job of ticking, mm. ticking all the boxes quite nicely there. So a six from you, a seven and a half from me, thirteen and a half for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, we've mentioned this a few times. Her influence at court, mm. as we said, very intelligent, very cultured uh, woman, thanks to her upbringing at Wilton. So Edith is apparently fluent in Latin, French, Danish, and Irish. Mm. Strange choice, that GCSE there. They're just sort of all the ones around the edge, aren't they? Hmm. From about 1060, she seems to have reorganised and formalised procedures at court. As you said, Edward doesn't really like the finery. He's got rather more rustic tastes. A bit of a Henry II figure. Mm. Edith, much more cultured, so she commissions various clothes and jewels for his personal ornament. Mm. She uh, had a goldsmith among her tenants. Mm. Edward is shown on coins and the royal seal from this period in enthroned majesty. Right, is that her influence then? That's almost certainly her influence. The Vita says, It was quietly and only for the occasion that he displayed the pomp of royal finery in which the Queen obligingly arrayed him. Mm. Frank Barlow, not Edward's brother, says, His staff encrusted with gold and gems, his saddle and horse trappings hung with little gold beasts and birds, the fine Spanish carpets on the floor, the golden embroidered hangings on the throne, could have struck him as a silly woman's frippery. (laughs) <laughs> I don't use that word nearly enough. 
Um, but it's, you know, this is impressive, though. This is an important part of kingship. Edward's not very interested, but Edith is doing it. She's making them a court, a much more luxurious, much more regal, much more impressive place, impressive mm. place to be. The Vita presents her as a central figure at court. She's a counsellor who can handle any situation with appropriate utterances, very much a female counterpart to Edward's sort of formal kingship. Mm. And she's got a very cosmopolitan uh, household. She acquires a French uh, femme de chambre, woman called Matilda, so a woman of the household. Yeah. Uh, t- yes, indeed, that's the sign of things to go. Takes responsibility for running Edward's household, but does have her own. We've got about 70 to 80 people identified in her household. Wow. Um, and of whom several ranked very high among the nobility and landowners in Doomsday. And then she can't get money out of a horse person. Mm. That's what not being the queen does for you. Mm. Um, it's a very cultured queenship. Um, Edward is building Westminster Abbey, but she's also busy. Um, at Wilton, later on in the reign, she has the abbey rebuilt in stone, which is very much complementing complimenting what Edward's doing at Westminster. I definitely thought it was stone anyway. Though the Vita notes that she finished sooner, and it was because it was more modest and didn't cost as much. Mm-hmm. Um, like Emma, she commissions her own history, which is you know an impressive thing to do in and of itself uh, the poetry in the work shows the influence of the Loire school which indicates an international outlook pre-conquest mm. it is probably started before 1066 so it shows the role of the Godwin family in running England and her role as a sort of peace weaver figure a council key to the country's good rule it's in two parts so interesting the second part is obviously written after 1066 oh right in which they're trying to find a new narrative. So the second part is more hagiography of Edward. Okay, make him a saint. It's got a bit more immediate influence than Emma's encomium because we mentioned that how for Emma, her son Harthacnute dies and then it basically gets forgotten and it's completely irrelevant. Yeah. But for Edith, her book still is used by the Normans. It's seen as quite a useful source. The Bayo Tapestry's narrative seems to have been partly based on the Vita. Really? So particularly, as we mentioned, Edward's deathbed scene. Oh, very much follows exactly in what is in the Vita. Well, but not saying. And by the way, this guy's going to be king after me. Well, I mean that is in the is Bayo Tapestry. It does have Harold being effectively acknowledged as successor at that point wow. by Edward. So the Bayo Tapestry is an interesting thing. It's not purely pro-Norman, anti-Saxon. It's a mm. bit more nuanced than that. Well, it was, it was made by Saxons, wasn't it? Yeah, quite possibly. And then the 12th century, it provides the basis for the canonization of Edward the Confessor. Hmm. So useful. Now, an interesting thing, the bio-tapestry, um, there's been a lot of questions over who was responsible for commissioning it, and it's most often attributed to a chap called Odo of Bio, mm. who's a half-brother of William the Conqueror. But an historian, Carola Hicks, uh, argued that it could have been commissioned by Edith. Oh. The Vita, as I said, a very clear influence on the narrative. Many of the scenes are basically an exact copy of her version of events. Mm. Anglo-Saxon court renowned for embroidery because it's not actually a tapestry, it's an Mm. embroidery. Um, This is an art form that Edith and all the women at Saxon court would have been very familiar with, would have done themselves. So she would have been able to commission a great project and call upon a very skilled workforce Mm. in England. And Edith is one of the only women actually to appear in the bio-tapestry. Oh, Rex, facts! And as you said, Edith is not part of the rebellions against William. She retains her lands and status. Um, 
So, you know, maybe what she's doing here is sort of justifying her shift in allegiance, It's but it still depicts the family in a good light. Mm. So perhaps Edith is hoping to improve her standing at court, reconcile Saxon and Norman. Yeah, yeah, exactly, put the two together. The ambiguous narrative means it's not clearly on one side or the other. So sort of like the encomium, again, it's aimed at contemporary audience to reconcile conflict mm. and scandal. Scandal. Mm. So that would be a very impressive legacy. That would be fantastic. Um, now, interestingly, given that Wilton is where she's educated, it's where she wants to pretend that she was sent to, um, she doesn't actually seem to have been very popular there on the evidence of what comes afterwards. The building project may have been Edith having one eye on her dowager retirement. So she might have hoped that the Vita would have been celebrated there mm. and they would have pushed her cause potentially for her own salient reputation, certainly for influence. Mm. But there are other people at Wilton. Harold's daughter, Gunhild, is there. Mm. And given that her brothers are fighting against William and her father was killed, mm-hmm. may not have sympathised with Edith's situation. Edgar the Atheling's sisters, Margaret and Christina, are there. It's like a separate court then. <laughs> it is really, yeah. And again, she didn't support him in 1066, so mm. they are not necessarily Gosh. sympathetic to her. There's a chap called Gosselin, who's a noted hagiographer of the time. Mm. And um, he was provided materials for the life of the earlier Saint Edith, the daughter of Edgar the Peaceable, mm. by this Edith, Edith of Wessex. So he, she's obviously helped him out. But he doesn't mention her or her generosity to Wilton at all in any of his writings. Hmm. But it also suggests that maybe the nuns of Wilton didn't support Edith's version or Edith's attitude to 1066, the Norman conquests, and her attempts to hagiographize herself. Yeah, the cutting and running bit. Mm. There's no cult, no cult develops around her and she doesn't become the abbess of Wilton. And she's also, one assumes, particularly unpopular in Northumbria. Yes. Where she had Goss yeah. Patrick murdered. This va- virtual Ooh, prince. Potentially. Well, potentially, allegedly. <laughs> this is, of course, all part of the process that leads to the rebellion against Tostig, mm. leads to Harold and Tostig having their grand falling out, leads to Tostig going to Hardrada, leads to Harold being in the north when William invades, leads to the Norman conquest. God, yeah. So it didn't go well, her intervention in Northumbria. No. Now, to be fair, she couldn't have foreseen all of those consequences. No, but it's the but butterfly effect there. It does seem like she's very much part of this southern court. She's very much a Wessex queen. And 1066 and the subsequent events suggest she's not actually a very good candidate to be a national figure of unity. Because North don't like her, yeah. As Pauline Stafford said, 1066 revealed how far the king and queen of the English had still been the king and queen of the West Saxons. Mm. So seeing that with our previous episodes on Elfgiver versus Emma, mm. Eldgith versus what's going on, how the Mercia-Northumbria bits are still this separate identity. I think it's better than it is bad. Because, I mean, you know, if you're thinking of a a Norman, a medieval Mm. queen and the sort of thing they should be doing, then, you know, she's commissioning a work of history, she's making the court look grand and Mm. splendiferous, she's, you know, that's all sort of stuff that you would think a queen should be doing. That's good medieval queening. I wish there was a little bit more evidence about the tapestry. Yeah. Because um, that would be mega. Mm. And there's quite good little pointers there. Mm. Four. Ooh, well, that's that's more bad than good. Is it? Well, that's less than half, isn't it? Yeah, but I sort of think I work with neutral as being zero. <laughs> and you have to <laughs> neutral is zero out of... If, you, if you're just kind of in the middle, yeah. fairly middling, that's zero out of ten. Yeah. Uh, if you killed somebody and did some bad stuff, then maybe a two. All right, well, I'll go with a five. <laughs> I'll just I'll just middle of the road this one. And I'd forgotten then about the whole 
pomp and ceremony thing that becomes important later. Mm. And again, we, we remember so many consorts before had been completely voiceless. Yeah, she's got a book. And she's commissioned a book which results in A, the narrative of the Bayer Tapestry, and B, the only official English saint. Yeah. On the other hand, the potential that she caused the Norman invasion in the first place. Or <laughs> oh, yes, that's, that's the other negative. <laughs> so I'm sticking with five. I'm going to give her a six. I think it, she's, it seems like what you would want a queen to be doing. Mm. And unfortunately, some of her meddling may have backfired a little bit spectacularly. But I'm only going to criticise her so much for that. So a six from me, five from you, eleven, subjectivity. Longevity. So she is queen from the 23rd of January, 1045 to the 5th of January, 1066. So that's 20.92 years, Mm -hmm. which gives her a score of 13.5 out of 20. Not bad. I think she's doing all right. Dynasty, not the program. Well, comes unstuck here, of course. Mm. Zero children, Mm. which gives her a score of zero out of 20. That's that's not the best. And a total score of 45.5. Which is... Sixth best overall so far. Wow. But it's not all about the score, of course. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! I could be persuaded on this. In favour of her. She's a powerful queen. She's the only queen consort that we know of who survives being repudiated. Mm. And she doesn't just survive it, but she's actually much more powerful afterwards. Buried in Westminster Abbey. Institutes a much more regal court in this sort of sort of forgotten golden age, really. It's prosperous, peaceful. It's a really good time, actually. Just gets overlooked because of what happens later. She's an important person. She is one of the more powerful mm. queen consorts of the Saxon era. Mm. Against her, her lack of children and the family's total collapse before and during 1066 really pulls the rug from under her and any ambitions that she held. But, you know, she wasn't the, the main player... And I quite like, just as soon as we got onto the scandal, I quite like the character that appeared. Yeah, once she shows some corruption and murder, and yeah. <laughs> you thought, oh, I don't know. It's just it's a, bit of a, a bit of a... bit of a fight. Yeah. I sort of want to. Looking in the scores, her score's respectable because I've given higher in every yeah. category. You've yeah. kind of been marking it down most of the way through. Yeah, weird <laughs> no. that. It's, uh, it's a gut with me, Graham. <laughs> But that's, it's not about the scores. It's, it's not, it's not that about light. the scores. It's not about <laughs> shining the scores. Shining that light on the unknown people. Which case, I will say yes. Ooh. Okay, earlier I summarised her as uh, getting repudiated, come back, not doing anything and disappearing. <laughs> but. But. but uh, that was before we'd done the scandal bit. <laughs> yeah. And she, okay, got repudiated, survived, mm. came back, made good, got out of the game at the top suppose as a counter-argument, I'm thinking, what's the big thing that, you know, when we would come to the end of the series and we're comparing them all uh, against each yeah. other, what do you say about Edith? It's like, well, this is what she did. And you'd probably be saying, well, she might have commissioned the Veo Tapestry. But yeah, not that's a compelling argument, isn't But I'm it? thinking, otherwise, what does she actually do that's that incredible? And I think that's where 1066 is important, because potentially, had events panned out slightly differently... Mm. She could have had a very different role mm. afterwards, maybe as this sort of surrogate queen mother figure, maybe as some kind of regent or working with Harold. She mm. could have gone on to do something very impressive afterwards that no one else had done. Mm-hmm. But instead it goes against her and she does ultimately just fade into obscurity. 
That is true. When you compare her to the other one, I think I just haven't done Rex Factor for a long time. I got excited. <laughs> but yeah, she would just be fodder in the um, group stages. I think for me. So for me, I'm going for the first time. I'm changing it. Oh, you're no. changing it to yeah. no. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm changing I'm it taking no. all the enthusiasm yeah. away. Yeah, I don't know what came over me. <laughs> yeah, she's rubs. <laughs> it's a no for Edith <laughs> Wessex. She does not have the Rex Factor. She briefly had Ali's support, but he <laughs> no, will have forgotten it. her by next yeah, time. I don't like her. Correspondence Corner. Let us know what you think and whether she uh, deserved the Rex Factor. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod, Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page, or email Rex Factor Podcast at hotmail.com and go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com to uh, read the blogs and complete the polls. And if you think you can do better than the bio tapestry for depicting her, then send in your hashtag console card. And you definitely can. If you'd like to support the podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use, and subscribe. And if you'd like to hear more of us and uh, contribute financially, you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get bonus content. And we've got some new Privy Councillors to welcome oh, to the fold. hello. Kevin Biner, Laura Ann, Anne Hjotkjar, Lisa Gates, Sif Boynton, Emily Brown, Last God Standing Podcast, Dolce for Amy, or Amy, Ralph Steen, Earth Marsha, Paul, and Jack PGA1. Do you know why I like Paul the most out of that list? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I'm finding joy in the mundane at the moment. <laughs> and a few messages from new Privy Councillors. Hello. NJFPS5. Good one. Came late to this podcast and been catching up by listening to three or four programmes a day. Holy moly. Love your work and your enthusiasm. Can't wait to start listening to the Privy Council episodes now that I've almost caught up. God, you must hear my voice more than anyone else I know. <laughs> more than me. Y-N-K-C-X-R God, these are like number plates, people. What's going on? Gents, it's a pleasure to be a Privy Councillor. Keep up the good work. Manny! The very unconventionally named Sarah. Mm. After listening for <laughs> <Sorry>. about... <laughs> mm, not sure about that name. <laughs> After listening for about a year and a half and loving it, thought it only right to contribute. I'd miss my dose of Dunstan, Pineapple Head and others if it finished. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. And LDDCVD. I've loved the podcast over the last three or four years. Keep going. Thanks. A message on Instagram from Kensington about the Game of Thrones special episode we did. She said, I felt the need to let you know that I actually wheezed when Ali compared the death of Viserys. She actually what? Wheezed. With laughter. Wheezed when Ali compared the death of Viserys to ice magic ice cream topping. Well, hang on, hang on. I don't remember saying that. <laughs> or who Viserys is. Uh, Danny's brother that gets the gold poured on top of him by... Oh, Gold yeah. Drago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What did I compare it to? Magic uh, ice cream. Ice magic ice cream topping. Ice magic ice... Yeah, it goes hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I'm a bit disappointed you or me glossed over it. It was his God-tier comedic moment. Oh, thank you very much. Anyway, keep up the good work. <laughs> a message from Dale Pearson. Uh. I have a confession to make, and Ali's not going to like it. I accidentally skipped the episode on Edward I. And as I was an, on a noisy commute and was struggling to hear the audio, and on this episode in particular, so he skipped onto Edward II. We've got to sort that audio out, man. That was before we got all our nice new equipment and yeah. stuff. But also, I think I'd accidentally hit the wrong... Accidentally. <laughs> early trial. Oh. So it is worse audio even than normal for that time. Anyway, he says, I promise I will go back and listen to He still to hasn't listened to it. He, but he promises that he will. But perhaps if there was ever a contender for a special anniversary re-recording, maybe it's this one. 
Yeah. And I thought that's quite an interesting idea, actually. Maybe a, a sort of Rex Factor revisited. We could have a vote for which old episodes we should revisit and do again. Yeah. Happy to do that. Maybe we should, we should do it for the, maybe those, maybe the pre-good sound yeah. quality yeah. ones. I mean, technically it was really with the Scots, but if we did it sort of pre before we learn how to not turn the volume down <laughs> so you could actually hear it. <laughs> so sort of Saxons, Normans, Plantagenets. Plantagenets yeah. It's up to Elizabeth I nearly, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's up to that sort of period. So maybe that's something we could do at some point, a Rex Factor revisit. Mm. So oh. yes, that is it for Edith of Wessex. She didn't have the Rex Factor. No, she... Next time, we'll be doing Eldgith of Mercia. No, I'm trying to work out who she would be the husband of. Uh, Godwinson. <laughs> the wife. <laughs> what is wrong with me today? What? <laughs> yeah, because I immediately consort. thought we were on to William. No, we've got one more Saxon, the last okay. Saxon consort. Okay. Wicked. Until then, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio. Cheerio.